Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ Sunday morning Bible study. Glad you could join us wherever you're joining us from and hope that you continue to do so. Share this and pass it along to others who might be interested to hear a study from the Word of God. On our Sunday morning uh, time, we've been spending it with uh, the epistles of John, and we're in 1 John chapter 3, and uh, we're going to continue there this morning and invite you to open your Bibles and join along with us. We've been talking about uh, this author who we call John, John the Evangelist, but we don't know with any degree of certainty that it is the Apostle John, although it bears some striking similarities uh, to John's gospel in, ter in terms of theme and some of the technical mechanisms for how it is described that we have a relationship with God and what that means for how we live. We see that the writer talks a lot about the transitive properties of that relationship, making Christ the central focus, the fulcrum, if you will, of this uh, balance of a relationship. God sent Christ. We, uh, we are loved by God. We are loved by Jesus. We love him. We have faith in him. We enter into a relationship with him, and therefore we have a relationship with God as well. That also carries over to how we treat one another and how we interact together. We see that Jesus says these things, and John records them in his gospel, that if you love me, you'll love one another, uh, because the Father has loved me, and, the, and I have loved you, and etc. So this transitive property of these relationships exists, and the author here in 1 John will continue that very idea. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Notice in the previous chapter, he refers to his audience as little children, and he encourages the little children to abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. But he says here that we are children of God, and for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So again, the transitive property. If you know God, you will know his children. And if you don't know the children, it's because you don't know the father. Uh, th this is a, a intuitive idea that we have from our own families. Uh, I, I run across young people often, especially when I interact uh, in the summer times with our, our church camp at Wisconsin Christian Youth Camp. Uh, I'll see kids there and they'll say, well, I'm so-and-so. And, -so, and I, I'll say, okay, you have the same last name. Are you related to so-and-so? And, and they say, well, that's my, my parent or my uncle or my grandfather. And uh, I often will have some sort of a tie to that person because I know their parent. And if I know the parent, I know the child. And the same is true with us when it comes to one another and to the father. The world doesn't know us because it doesn't know God. It doesn't recognize who or what we are. To God, we are his children. To the world, we are nothing. Because the world doesn't define our value based on God because it doesn't know God. But when they know the Father, they know the children. Now, we know the Father, and we know we're children, but how does that translate to how we treat one another? Do we recognize one another as children of God because we are children of God? We should. Siblings should know one another. They should uh, recognize one another and recognize their standing in the family. I've said often that the children don't get to decide who the other children are. Uh, that's by virtue of the Father calling them children. And this same is true here. As the author says, beloved, verse 2, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, 
we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we're constantly chasing after being more like God. And we don't know exactly what we'll end up with, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him. When the time comes, we will be made into something new uh, because we are his children and we will move into a, a deeper relationship with him uh, in, in this next life. Verse four, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Okay, let's stop there for a minute. This idea of sin, the properties of sin and how sin is removed from us. Now we understand that Jesus Christ takes away our sin. Uh, we read earlier when John, the author, talks about uh, he who walks in darkness, that, that Jesus is the light and in him there is no darkness. And if you walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have a fellowship. But if you walk in darkness and you say you walk in the light, well, you're a liar. This is a question of the nature of God. God is righteousness. God is purity. God is holiness. We cannot have a relationship with God if we do not also have purity uh, and righteousness within us. But sin diminishes that purity. Sin takes away that righteousness. Sin blocks our path to God. What is the solution? The solution is Christ Jesus, our Savior, who removes that block, who takes away sin, who imputes on us a righteousness from God through him. So how do we reconcile because we know we all sin, right? Even believers, even saved people have sin that they, they transgress. We make mistakes. We fall short. So how do we reconcile this idea with these verses? Because he says that uh, Jesus came to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Okay. Now the next verse is verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, how do we reconcile that? Does that mean that if you're a believer, you have to be perfect? And if you're not perfect, that you're no longer a believer? You don't have a home with God? You don't have a relationship with him because you've sinned? Well, absolutely not. It means very similar uh, concepts to what we read in chapter 1. And we talked about the idea that it, it does not tell us that we're not going to have problems or we're not going to stumble or we're not going to sin if we walk in the light. Walking in the light is not perfection. Walking in the light is walking in communion with God so that our sins may be cleansed. That's what the author says, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses all impurity. So while we are in the light, we are continually being cleansed of the sin that we commit. I think the same is true here in verses five and six. He's making a statement about the righteousness of God. In Christ, there is no sin. Does that mean that those who are in Christ will not sin? No, it simply means that when we are in Christ, our sin is not seen. Our sin is not held on us. Our sin is not worn on us. When we are in Christ, sin no longer exists because we have the blood of Christ covering us. This is difficult because of our language and how we understand these words when he says very plainly, in him there is no sin. Well, we understand in the nature of God and of Christ sin doesn't exist, but also it has to do with how we are seen by God when we live in Christ. 
when we are clothed with Christ, uh, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, when we put on Christ, our sin is no longer held to our account. Our sin is no longer seen. And we can go to Romans and talk about what that means. Should we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? That's what he says in, uh, in, in chapter 6. Uh, and, and that's true. We, um, we no longer, I'm sorry, chapter 5. We no longer live in sin because we are in Christ. So while we may transgress the law of God, even as believers, it is not seen on us because we're clothed with Jesus. So when he says he has no sin and, and, uh, and there is no sin in him, it means that when we are in him, then, then sin does not exist for us. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So again, not, not literally. Uh, those who abide in him will sin in, a, in a, an objective way. But when we are in him, our sin does not condemn us because through Christ there is no condemnation, Romans chapter 8. We are not condemned by, by, these, by these things that trip us up in this life. So I want to, as you look at this, we can read this and, and feel a sense of hopelessness. Well, okay, if there is no sin in him and I'm in him but I'm still sinning, there's a problem there uh, because those who abide in him will not sin. Well, does that mean I'm not really abiding in him? Well, it means something about the nature of God and our relationship with him through Christ. That sin does not have the condemnation that it once had because we have Christ. We will still sin, but we will not be condemned for our sin because Jesus Christ washes that away. And as, he, as the same author says in chapter 1, we are continually cleansed of our sins by walking in the light. I think it's also true that if we are in a relationship with Christ and with God, by extension, that sin does not have the hold on our life that it once had because our heart has been transformed. When you are in a dynamic relationship with the Father through Christ, sin doesn't have the appeal that it once had. We've been freed from sin. It has been removed, uh, and therefore we live differently. So while this doesn't literally mean that there will be perfection achieved by those who are in Christ, it means something a little more figurative, that, that perfection is granted to us by virtue of our relationship with Christ. It also means that the transformed heart will behave differently. And if you're struggling with sin but claim to be a believer, then you need to take an examination of that uh, contradiction. You need to examine if your heart is truly following after him or if you're just giving lip service. So this is very much an instructive passage to look within ourselves to understand that there is no sin in Christ, that we are freed from it, but that also means that we shouldn't go back to living in it, uh, taking advantage of and diminishing the grace of God through Christ. And that, again, that, that would be Paul's take on it in the book of Romans. But I don't want anyone to get tripped up here and give, have a sense of hopelessness about their salvation. Um, the, the, he who abides in him, uh, no one who abides in him, verse 6, sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Um, that just means we're cleansed of our sin when we're in Christ. And it also means that we're called to live at a higher level when we are in Christ. We are called to be different. Literally, sin will still be a part of our life, but we will be motivated by our love that we receive from God and our love for God 
not by the chasing after the things of this world. So that's important to understand. It's a little bit complicated, but it's very important for your Christian walk because otherwise we would just give up. But the fact is that we're continually cleansed of wrongdoing and we have a focus that goes beyond uh, the lawlessness of sin. We uh, reach for something greater. Although we fall short sometimes, our heart continues to reach and that's what God wants. That's what he wants to see. Verse seven, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil has uh, sinned from the beginning. The son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. He's also talking about how we um, make assessments of the messages we hear. All of these voices that shout at us and that, that, that yell at us and that influence us. The writer here is saying you need to make sure that no one throws you off. Make sure no one lies to you. And how do you know this? Look at their life. Look at their heart. Sin has nothing to do with God. And if there is sin that is, is, is crippling your life, then you need to examine your relationship with God. If you get into God by getting into Christ, you will get out of sin. Uh, so again, we're not talking about the mistakes that we make and the ways we fall short. We're talking about what guides and directs your life. Is it Christ or is it the works of this world or of the devil? Or whatever word you want to put in there that distracts you and causes you to miss the mark. That's the literal translation of the word sin missing the mark, we fall short. It will happen, but in Christ, your sins are forgiven and you are guided by your love for God. Those who are not guided by love for God, but are guided by selfish, sinful actions, it's easy to spot them if you're discerning and you won't listen to their lies. <clears throat> so those in God cannot sin because they're born of God. Verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Ooh, now here we go. Now it gets hard. It's easy for us to say, yeah, we want to do good and we might fall short, but we're going to keep striving for righteousness in God and being grateful for the blood of Christ that makes us righteous. But then he says this in verse 10, hey, this is how you're going to know the difference. The children of God and the children of Satan are known by how they live. You can see it in the choices they make. And the one who does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then this little addendum, nor the one who does not love his brother. That one hits me like a ton of bricks. Maybe it does you too. Because it's easy for me to say, okay, well, don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other thing because that's, that's sinful. We're not going to do that. Those who abide in God, they don't do those things. But what about loving your brother? What about loving those around us? What about loving one another and, and particularly fellow Christians? So it's easy. The, the one who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Simple. I get that. That makes sense. Nor the one who does not love his brother. Ooh, that's harder because that's, that's not just me and my choices. That's me and other people's choices. Um, <clears throat> I'm supposed to love everyone. Some people make that harder than it should be, right? Uh, loving people is hard. Uh, loving ourselves is hard. Love is hard. 
But the author here says that think of the most uh, egregious transgression of God's law. Now understand that that is on equal footing with not showing love to your fellow Christian or to those around you. Verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He boils it all down to love one another. He does not mention any other specific sin. We have, we, we, we have those lists in our mind, but he doesn't list any specific sin in this passage. He talks about sin as a general term or idea, but he gets very specific with this one. And this is the essence of the message you've heard from the beginning. This is what Jesus was all about, the author says, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay. So he mentions murder specifically here. But then he says, if you don't have love for one another, you're a murderer. You, you're, you're a murderer if you don't have love. See, he boils down all things with sin and righteousness to this question. Do you show love to others? And what is the standard? What is the baseline? What is our, our grounding for understanding what love is? Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, Christ. He died for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we know love because we were shown love in the death of Christ, and now we must follow suit laying down our life, not necessarily a literal death, by the way, but a setting aside of our own interest for the interest of others, for the interest particularly of our fellow Christians. And we ought to do that. Verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, ooh, now he's stepping on toes. He's getting very specific. If you have means and you see someone who is in need and you don't help them, then, then how, how does love abide in you? Defend that. Defend saying that you uh, abide in the love of God, yet you won't help someone in need. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And, and will, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but indeed and truth. Verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He's saying, don't just give lip service. Take action. Take action to help others. Take action in showing love. Have an active love. Have an active faith in how you love others. But know that whatever our heart condemns us of, whatever guilt we bear, God removes that because God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. And he is quick to forgive. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. 
Verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he commanded us. This echoes when, when Jesus says that the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, and the second greatest commandment that is like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the author here echoes the same thing, and he, he says it very clearly. I don't know how more, more, much more plain this can be. He says, this is his commandment. That's it. Bottom line, here it is, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. That's it. That's it. Believe in Jesus and love one another. That is the commandment. That's it. That's what guides us. That settles everything else. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Wow, powerful passage to close the chapter. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments and what are the commandments? You go back to the previous verse. Believe in Jesus, love one another. Believe in Jesus, love one another. Everything else is covered if you're doing those things. And the one who does this, he says in verse 24, abides in God, lives in the light, walks with God, and God is with him. And how do we have this assurance? How can we know this? Uh, how, uh, we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, testifies to us and confirms for us our security and our place in God through Christ. What a beautiful chapter, chapter 3 is. And what an eye-opening chapter it is. Because it is so easy to get hung up on this idea of doing everything exactly right and hey, I am all for striving to be as righteous as possible and do everything as right as we can. I'm a bit of a perfectionist in, in, in real life, and I believe in doing everything the right way. And, and, but we can get caught up on that. And we can destroy ourselves with guilt. And we can destroy one another with selfishness. But what does the author say? If you want to be in God then it will be evident that you are in God through Christ by how you live. And what is the essence of that message? Believe in Jesus, love one another. It's as simple as that. And the Spirit will confirm your relationship with God in your heart by making those choices. We will continue this study next week. I greatly appreciate you joining us. Hope you continue to. Our worship service will be live streamed. Uh, beginning in the 11 o'clock hour right here, wherever you're watching this. And you can always go back and watch later, but I hope you'll continue to join us and share this with others. And we look forward to seeing you soon.